Don Mockholz, and you are listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 115 for the week of March 16th, 2022. The related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com, two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, March 16th, the moon is big and bright and up all night. Full moon is officially on Friday, March 18th at 0716 Universal Time. By next Tuesday, March 22nd, the moon will be about 80% full and in the morning sky, rising around midnight. This will give you an hour or two of dark sky in the evenings. The planet Venus reaches its furthest point from the sun in our morning sky this week. And on March 21st, it passes about a degree away, that is north of 11th magnitude, comet 22P Kof. Both the moon and the light of Venus will make observations of this comet difficult. But it will be rewarding if you can do it. Now, that's a challenge. And this week, both Mars and Saturn are in the vicinity of Venus in the morning sky. On Sunday, March 20th, the sun passes the equator headed north. This marks the spring equinox. Everyone on the Earth gets the same thing. 12 hours of daylight and the sun rising due east and setting due west. If you ever wondered where east and west are, watch the sunrise and sunsets this week. As the moon gets out of the sky late this week, watch for the zodiacal light in the western sky. This is true for the northern hemisphere, while from the southern hemisphere you can see it well now in your morning sky. You have probably seen it before and not noticed it. The zodiacal light is a cone of glow with a wide base near the horizon, and then it tapers off as you go higher in the sky. It hangs on for a while after the rest of the sky gets dark. The zodiacal light is named after the area in which it hangs, the zodiac, the area that the sun travels. It is sunlight reflected off of particles outside our atmosphere. These particles gather near the plane of the sun's path. That is why they are seen in this part of the sky. From the northern hemisphere, this time of the year, that cone of light stands highest in the sky in the evening, and it is not interfered with by the Milky Way. So, it's easy to see. Look for it. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week? 
which for our purposes begins Wednesday, March 16th through Tuesday, March 22nd. It depends upon where you are located. This week we have four zones. All you need to know is your latitude. There are two areas which will not see the International Space Station this week. They are far north and far south. You will not see it if you live north of 63 degrees north. Oslo, Norway will see it, but if you live north of that, you'll not be able to find it. And south of 40 degrees south, it will also not be visible. So, New Zealand, you are out of luck this week when it comes to seeing the ISS. For the other two zones, one will see it in their evening sky and the other will see it in their morning sky. Okay, from 20 through 63 degrees north, it's in your evening sky. For some, it will be there every night of the week. For others, just for the beginning or at the end of the week. And that leaves the area between 20 degrees north and 40 degrees south. You will see it in your morning sky. In the middle of that range, 20 degrees north to 40 degrees south, it will be in your morning sky all week. For the rest of you, for only part of the week. To determine where it will be in your sky, go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location, then click on ISS. With the moon in the sky, we will forego the comets this week. But next week, we'll look at some comets. This year, 2022, I will tell the stories of each of my 12 visual comet discoveries. And I will tell each story as we approach the anniversary of that discovery. This means the sky will appear about as it did when I discovered each comet. This week, we start with the discovery of a comet on March 23, 2010. The story of this discovery and of all the comet discovery stories can be found on my website, donmockholtz.com. Now, the written story for that comet has stuff that I won't get into, mostly background information. But this week, I will talk about things that are not in the write-up. These are some interesting tidbits that won't make it into the autobiography. This is the comet that almost got away. To set the stage, I was living in Koufax, California and working as a real estate appraiser. I had already visually discovered 10 comets, The most recent one was nearly six years before, on August 27, 2004. Now we are at March 23, 2010. I got up at 4.15 that Tuesday morning and went out to my roll-off roof observatory. In the previous week, I had covered much of the morning sky south of the equator. This morning, I will cover north of it. I would be using my 18.5-inch reflector at a magnification of 77 in a field of view of 0.8 degrees. 
I suited up <laughs> wearing my pajama bottoms with wool-lined pants over them and an oversuit covering nearly my whole body. The temperature was 42 degrees Fahrenheit. I began searching at 435, looking through the eyepiece for fuzzy objects. A new comet should look like a small cotton ball upon discovery. Our yellow lab dog, Roxy, was with me at the observatory. I picked up three galaxies while searching. They are NGC's 7217, 7331, and 7426. At 5.37 a.m., I picked up another fuzzy object. I looked at my digital setting circle computer box, and it said, quote, searching data, end quote. That means it knows of no known object in the field of view. Two more checks need to be made. First, I had to make sure it was not a known comet. I memorized the position that the setting circles were giving me and checked against the coordinates of all known comets bright enough to be visible through my telescope. None were known to be in the area. This took a couple of minutes, so I had to find the object again. So now I, I was fairly certain that it was a comet and that it was undiscovered. A second check is to see if it is moving. A comet should show motion against the background stars in about a half an hour. They don't move very fast, but they do move. I made a drawing on my log sheet showing the stars and placing an X where the comet was. It was now 11 minutes since I first saw the comet. In the background, my radio was playing a morning comedy talk show entitled Rob, Arnie, and Don. Arnie was talking about exploding whales. It was humorous, but I had to keep to the task at hand. The sky was brightening, and the comet was becoming harder to see. I switched eyepieces to a higher magnification and made another drawing. I also plotted it on my atlas. This helped to confirm the coordinates of the object. Upon switching back to lower magnification, I found the comet was now disappearing into the twilight background. I had not detected any motion. I closed up the telescope and came back into the house. A potential comet discovery at that time was to be reported to the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, actually a portion of it known as the Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams. I refer to that as CBAT. They are the Clearinghouse. They confirm the comet's existence, if they can, and determine the orbit, and they place the name on the comet. They then release the announcement about the comet. However, in order to get follow-up observations, they prefer to have some type of motion detected 
so that other observers down the line would know exactly where to point their telescopes. Back at my desk, I turned on my computer and entered the world of the Internet. I checked the CBAT's website, a section called Comet Checker, to see if any known comets were in the position of this comet. None were. I then looked at another website and downloaded a photo taken years ago of this area. No faint comets or group of stars were there. I then typed up an email explaining that I did not detect motion while giving the position 22 hours 53 minutes plus 31.3 degrees, its brightness, magnitude 11, and the date and time I saw it. I also said that the sky was supposed to be clear the next morning, so I should be able to get a second position then. Little did I know that this would not be the case. So here we go. Listen up. You might wonder, in the midst of a potential comet discovery, what does one do? Here is the answer. Much of what you do on any other day. And in this podcast, I will delve into all the stuff I did that week. You won't find any of this published anywhere. At 9.09, I called my friend George Robinson, who was vacationing in Arizona. He will look for it if it's clear the next morning. I then took my son to a doctor's appointment. I then met another appraiser to give her back some books. I called and told my brother Bob about the potential comet discovery. In the afternoon at 1 p.m., I did two real estate appraisal inspections on two properties in Colfax, each one taking about 45 minutes. I came home and called and told my mom. And then I called another appraiser about an appraisal issue. I called George again. Then I made dinner for my wife, sons, and me. High clouds were coming in. That night, I worked at my desk until 10.30 writing appraisal reports. I also emailed another appraiser and Ray Fox, who at that time was running my website. I tried to get some time on SLU to observe the comet, but it was too low in the sky for them to see it. I did not sleep very well that night. I checked the weather several times before finally getting up at 3.50 a.m., before the comet even rose over the horizon. I got out to the observatory and covered the telescope and looked at some of the star clusters while waiting for the comet to rise. The weather was not good, with high cirrus clouds hiding some of the stars. As the area rose above the local horizon at 4.30, I put my telescope on it and watched. The stars were fading in and out due to the clouds. My clearest view was at about 
and then the clouds thickened up again. I did not see the comet, but also saw nothing at the location that it was at at the previous morning. But then again, it was hazy in the area. I came back into the house and notified the CBAT. I suggested that they put it on the confirmation page for others to try to confirm or maybe notify other observers to get them to try it. They said they would do the latter, but the responsibility was upon me to find people to confirm it. The weather forecast for Colfax (laughs) was for rain the next morning. So after checking the weather forecast for other parts of the U.S., I emailed amateur astronomer Alan Hale of New Mexico, and I asked him to confirm it. Alan is the co-discoverer of Comet Hale-Bopp, and he has confirmed my comets in the past, and he's fully capable of seeing this object. He phoned me, and I gave him the positions, and he said that he would give it a try. All those things happened in the morning, and the day wasn't over. This is just Wednesday, the day after I saw the comet. My car would not start and needed to have a battery replaced at a cost of $96. Then I drove to Nevada County and walked, I walked six miles to inspect a 40-acre landlocked property. So I drove as far as the roads would take me, brought my notes, my maps, my camera, got out of, and some water, got out of the car, and walked six miles in in all to the property, Uh, walked the perimeter of a 40-acre property, and walked back to my car. It rained in Koufax early the next morning, Thursday morning. I received a phone call from Alan Hale at 6.55 a.m. Did he see the comet? No, he did not, and he searched two or three degrees from my position of two days earlier. George Robinson called from Arizona to say the light dome from a nearby city was too much to see the comet. At 8.30 a.m., I attended a real estate meeting in Auburn, California. I, I go to these every week. Then I went grocery shopping and went home to unload groceries. I cleaned my 18-inch telescope mirror and culminated the scope. Then I sat at my desk and researched and wrote appraisal reports. The CBAT indicated that no one had reported seeing it or confirming it. I had first seen the comet on Tuesday. Now it was Thursday, and no one had been able to confirm it. These things don't stand still, you know. I now had two more mornings with no moon in the sky in order to find this comet. The question was, where did it go? With moonset at 4.44 a.m. on Friday the 26th, I would have only about an hour of dark sky to search. The following morning, I would have even less time. But I've also learned that some comets in this part of the sky are headed toward the sun. That would favor the area below the comet's original position. So, and this was very critical, I mapped out an area to sweep. 
First, I drew a circle seven degrees around the original discovery position. That, that is seven degrees in diameter. I then drew a rectangle box around that, and that would be the area to cover because the way I sweep the sky, it's from left to right, and then I drop down a little bit left to right again, and in the course of an hour or so, I could cover that rectangle. I had two short mornings to catch this comet, or it would probably be lost forever. My plan was to begin at 4.15 Friday morning. So, how did I feel? I was nervous, but confident. I believed that I could find it, and it would not be easy. If I did not find it, it would be lost forever, and I would not get credit for the discovery. It rained into the night, but the storm was fast moving and the sky was predicted to be, be, be clear by 3. I got up just before 4 a.m. and the sky was clear. I began sweeping at 4.20 and for the next 59 minutes, I picked up only a galaxy, NGC 7217, but no comet. Finally, at 5.19, I picked up a faint fuzzy object, my first and only thought was that this was the comet. It was near the lowest part of my search rectangle. There was no galaxy in this part of the sky, so I plotted it on my atlas and made a drawing to see for sure if it was moving in the proper direction. I went into the house and woke up, well, my, my late wife, Laura, she passed away three years later, and our youngest son, Mark, but Matt, my, our other son, was too difficult to awaken. Mark came out and saw it, but my wife was unable to see it through the telescope. The comet had been moving two degrees per day, a fast rate for a comet. I came into the house and reported it to the CBAT. An hour later, I talked to Dr. Marsden. He was thinking of holding off on the announcement until they had a preliminary orbit and that would require getting more accurate positions from astronomers using electronic cameras. It was placed on the near-Earth object confirmation page, and then the observations came pouring in. As it turned out, the announcement was made later that day, Friday, March 26. So how did I spend the rest of the day? I could have had a party for the whole day and into the next day, but <laughs> that's not me. That morning, I called my friend George, my parents, my brother, and a couple of appraisers to tell them the news. Next, I was driving to Nevada County, west of me, to look for comparables for a property that I was appraising. I did about 150 miles of driving in the rural areas there. In the afternoon, I drove east to Placerville for our son's track meet. While there, I called my friend Rich Page on the cell phone to tell him. I then drove our son and some of his friends home and took my son to the high school so he could pick up his car. I got home and checked the CBAT online, and a new orbit was already calculated for this comet and I had received five emails from other astronomers. 
This is a comet that, if I had not found, it would never have been found. I have three or four comets like that. This comet continued to move toward the sun, as seen from the Earth, and was only visible to us, astronomers, for about a week. The next morning, Saturday, March 27th, I saw the comet again, went back to bed, and up again at 7.30. That day, I drove many more miles to see comparables for that 40-acre property that I was appraising. The sky then clouded up. This was my 11th named comet discovery, coming 607 hours since my previous find in August of 2004. I had swept for a total of 7,654.25 hours since January 1st, 1975. This is the first visual comet discovery by anyone since October 2006, and, and that one was found by David Levy. It would be six months before the next comet was found visually, then eight more years for the next one. Now for fun with the marathon. The Messier Marathon is coming up in another week. This effort to find all 110 of the galaxies, clusters, and nebula cataloged by Charles Messier in one night, is held late March of each year. Do what I do. Practice before the big night. That will not be easy with the moon in the evening sky, but after new moon on the 18th, get out into the evening and find the first 10 objects. These are what is known as the evening rush, and to get them done and behind you is always a relief and an adventure. You can start finding them as soon as the sky gets reasonably dark, or wait until they are closer to the horizon an hour later to mimic the view you will have in another 10 days when we do the actual marathon. Now, I want to tell you something about the Messe Marathon that few people know about, and even fewer will try doing. I'm telling you because I want you to at least consider doing this. Among my listeners, I, I know that I have more than a few sharp deep sky observers out there, amateur astronomers who are cutting edge when it comes to observing projects. If you are up for the challenge, then here it is. We always say that we run the Messe Marathon when there is no moon in the sky or, or very little moon in the sky. And that is true. The marathon each year is timed based upon the moon's phase, which is different each year. When I lecture on the Messe Marathon, I say that. But then I also say that it does not need to be that way that I once did a Messe Marathon and found 109 objects when the moon was three days past full moon. You might think that I am crazy, but I'm not any crazier than some of you. Cutting edge, remember that? Okay, so on March 19th, 20th, 1984, I did that marathon.
As usual, I found my first 66 objects in the first 60 to 90 minutes. Then the moon rose. By the way, you might not have noticed, but the fainter Messe objects are in the first 66. Most all of the bright Messier objects are in the morning sky. So you can handle a bright moon in that sky. Anyway, on that night, the moon rose after I found the first 66 objects. The very bright moon, more than 90% full, was between Virgo and Libra. And there's no Messier objects there. The closest one is M5, 17 degrees north. I then took a nap of, well, five hours and got up around 3 a.m. and found the rest of the Messe objects except for M30, which had not yet risen before morning twilight. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? We will have similar conditions this coming week on Sunday night, March 20th, Monday morning, March 21st. Now, my long-range forecast says partly cloudy here, but I am planning on doing the Messe Marathon on that night, the evening of March 20th. The next night is good, too, as the moon will be only about 80 degrees full on March 21st, 22nd. So I'm suggesting that you try it, too. Be different than everyone else. During the few nights after that, the moon becomes less bright, but it approaches many of the Messe objects. Avoid the nights of March 23rd, 24th, and March 24th, 25th, as in the morning sky, the moon will be near M8, M20, and M24. All will be difficult to see with the moon nearby. Most astronomy clubs will hold their Messe Marathon on Saturday, Sunday, March 26th, 27th. As I pointed out a few weeks ago in this podcast, on that night, the moon will be near M72 in the morning sky. But most of us should still be able to pick up that globular cluster. Some clubs are holding their Messe Marathon on Saturday, Sunday, April 2nd and 3rd when the moon will be about 10% full and within 10 degrees of M74. I often do several Messe marathons each March, and I expect this year will be no different. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? The sun heads north across the equator. Look for the zodiacal light in the evening and Venus in the morning. And do the Messe Marathon this week in moonlight, if you dare. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episode number 115 for March 16th, 2022. I'm Don Mockles. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmockles.com. That is spelled D-O-N. M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com. Two H's. You can contact me at DonTheAstronomer at gmail dot com. Once again, that's DonTheAstronomer at gmail dot com. 
God willing and Todd willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. I'll tell the story about my fifth comet discovery on March 31st, 1992. And we head into Messe Marathon Week. All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.